Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Here we go. And welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. We are here with Ali Feldman Taylor, founder and president of Voters for Animal Right Animals Rights. Hello, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking with you. I really, uh, I really admire the work you're doing. I've been following all of your feeds, and have been looking forward to talking with you. Um, so. VFAR, Voters for Animals Rights, helps elect candidates who support animal protection and lobby for strong laws to stop animal cruelty, right? So that is, in a nutshell, the mission. And you established um, Voters for Animal Rights in 2017, which is extraordinary considering how much work you've done. So I want to dig right in and hear all about it. Everything that's happened from like what led you to establishing uh, sure. VFAR and then and then sort of all sorts of things that have tra transpired since then. Yeah. So I um I had worked on the um sorry one second my cat is Oh we welcome cats on the podcast. It's all right. <laughs> um I'm trying to distract her so she she wants to play right now and so she's clawing at my legs. So trying to get her to back off a little bit. But um, so yes, um, it, it's actually, it's pronounced, Voters for Animal Rights is pronounced VFAR. VFAR. Uh, and um, we were founded in 2017. We are an all-volunteer um, grassroots organization that focuses exclusively on political advocacy for animals in New York. We mobilize voters, we organize lobbying efforts to give a voice to animals. And through the political process, we're building a coalition of advocates who are trying to strike at the heart of what allows systematic animal abuse and cruelty to persist in society. And that's a lack of fundamental rights and laws to protect them. We work to gain legally enforceable rights for animals by codifying animal rights into law at the local and the state level in New York. Um, and we started this organization because we saw a dire need for political advocacy for animals in New York State. Uh, protesting, I've done lots of it. Animal rescue, done lots of it as well, as you can tell by my five cats running around my apartment right now. <laughs> um, and protesting and animal rescue is incredibly effective in, uh, you know, changing public opinion and bringing about some change. Pushing corporations to change their policies is also helping to move the needle. Those are all incredibly important components uh, into animal advocacy. But at VFAR, we believe that in order to bring longstanding change, we need to be codifying these rights into law. If we don't have laws to protect animals, we're gonna have to be protesting our way for a very, very long time. And when we see different corporations or entities that abuse and use animals and exploit them, um, changing their policy. So for example, when we see the circus saying, okay, we're not going to use animals anymore. That's great. And that should be commended. However, if there isn't a law to legally require them to never use animals again, there's nothing that's present that's preventing that corporation from deciding in the future to use animals. So that's why we feel it's incredibly important that we have these type of laws on the books. Um, what's different about Voters for Animal Rights versus other organizations is that we're actually a political advocacy group. 
Um, we are a nonprofit, but it's a political nonprofit. And by doing so, that gives us the power to endorse candidates for office. And that's where a lot of our, that's where pretty much all of our leverage comes from. It's very hard to get lawmakers to do what you want if they don't feel that they have the coverage to take a hard line on animal protection issues. And there's nothing that elected officials care about more than getting reelected. So what we do is we endorse candidates for office. Whenever there's a, a race that's coming up, there's one coming up in New York in a month, um, we take a look at all the candidates who are running, we survey them and do intense research on their past actions and positions on animal rights, we interview them, and we do a deep dive into how they would serve uh, the people of New York on animal rights issues. And then we make an endorsement in, on who would be the best candidate and who would be the candidate that people should stay away from. We then get to work on their campaigns and we help push them over the top to make sure they get into office. And we find that this is an incredibly effective way to making our voices heard at both the city and the city, state and federal level um, to getting these laws passed. So as an example, um, it doesn't take a lot of voters to get somebody to sort of make a difference in, in one specific race. Um, this is something that anybody can do in their own hometown, and I encourage them to do this. And that is talk to the candidates who are running. Ask them what their positions are in animals. Make sure that they know that you're somebody who's going to be talking to other voters in the district who care about animal rights issues. Um, in one example, in New York City, there was a person who was running for re-election. They had never supported animal rights. They were vehemently opposed to it. And when they ran for re-election, we supported their opponent. Their opponent ended up winning by just a few hundred votes. And that's just one example of many of how you can really make a huge difference in getting good people into office who are gonna advocate for you and also send a message to the rest of the electorate that, hey, if you don't support these positions on, if you don't support these positions on animal rights, there's gonna be consequences for you at the ballot box. Very exciting and, um, and critical too. I can only imagine, I, I know of your organization, but I haven't really looked, I'm in Europe, but I haven't really dug into the whole national scene. I'm sure you could let me know though later, perhaps um, other like organizations. And I think this is one of my questions I had lined up for you that advocates in other North American cities, potentially across the world, have contacted you to get insight on how they can launch similar actions in their own communities, because what you're doing um, as an organization in itself is groundbreaking, how you're, how you're um, organizing advocacy. Um, well, there are organizations that are like this, There's, I, but I wish that I would see more of them. Right. When we look nationally um, at, you know, who the organizations are that are getting things done, we think of a lot of the same big names. But we believe that, it's, that change begins at the local level. It is extremely difficult to get national laws passed, but if you live, you know, I think at the city level, it doesn't take as much to get it done. Um, you know, we, we say things like, well, let's try, we want to ban fur everywhere. Well, that's pretty hard, but start with your own local municipality, start with your own state, even getting things at the state level is very difficult, but start with your own small town. That's something that's much more attainable. And as it spreads and spreads and spreads, that's when you can start to see more movements statewide or countrywide. Right. So that's what I was thinking. People yeah. who are looking to that change yeah, at a municipality level. And I, I don't, I'm not familiar with political advocacy organizations for animals abroad, but I do know that in the United States, there are many states that do have organizations similar to Voters for Animal Rights in New York. 
Okay, that's great. I look forward to learning more about them. Um, this was a question very long down my list, but I'd kind of like to crunch into a real life example, especially for listeners, especially as this is also current. So uh, the horse carriages, this is yeah. a very current issue. Um, and I'd like to hear more about what, what you're doing in terms of um, perhaps mobilizing around legislation, legislation to end this, but also the citizen awareness piece. I know that, again, you're, you're a political advocacy organization, but then citizen awareness is so much a part of this as well. Uh, I took a horse carriage ride through Central Park maybe 30 years ago. I was a teenager, you know? I could never do it again. Um, actually, last, one of the last times I was in New York City, I was doing a photo shoot with uh, several vegan moms, and we walked past a group of the and a horse carriages, and one of them, you know, said, want to take a ride, ladies? And we were like, no, you got the wrong group, buddy. Right. <laughs> fellow moms I was with said that. But I think when I look at the work you're doing, I also think of the citizen awareness piece, uh, because yeah. people just have sometimes no idea that there's cruelty inherent in the industry. Um, right. So yeah, I would love to, to hear what's going on right now with the horse carriages and also the work that's been leading up to now. So as you know, you know, horse carriages have this overly romanticized traditional view that I think has perpetuated for decades and decades. But equally, the amount of anger and fervor and passion that activists have put into banning the use of horse-drawn carriages in New York City has been going on for decades as well. It's a very, very, very tough fight. Um, before I started Photostorm Rights, I actually worked on the campaign to ban horse-drawn carriages at an organization called NICLASS. Um, and they're continuing to work on this to this day. That is, in my opinion, I think that was the issue that put animal rights on the map in terms of a political issue in New York City. And that was the issue that I think got our local elected officials to start paying attention to animal rights activists on other issues besides the horses, which I can talk about in a little bit and sort of how that process played out. Um, there have been many iterations of legislation that have come through the city council over the past two decades to either rein in horse-drawn carriages and regulate them more or change the way they do business or ban them outright. We, of course, want to see a total ban on horse-drawn carriages in New York City. We don't believe that animals should be used and exploited for horse carriages, period. Um, and the closest that has come is there was a bill in the council that would have replaced them with electric vehicles, um, like these beautiful old time cars that didn't pass. Um, then there was legislation that would have completely moved them in entirely into Central Park. Right now their stables um, are about a 10 to 15 minute ride away over on the West Side Highway. And if you're not familiar with New York City, um, it's extremely crowded in Manhattan. There's very, very dense traffic. There's police sirens, ambulances, taxis. Uh, it's like that 24 hours a day, even at three o'clock in the morning, New York City midtown traffic is pretty heavy. So there was, this proposal originally would have moved not just their, uh, the rides into Central Park, but their stables, since the stables are in midtown Manhattan as well, or on the West Side Highway. Um, that didn't pass. What they did pass in 2019 was a local law that required the horses only give rides in Central Park. 
Um, so that way, the only time they're supposedly out of the park is when they're traveling from their stables into Central Park. Which That's is still very problematic, which is, which is every single time they have to change shifts. Right. Um, it's still not a permanent solution. It's still not protecting the horses from traffic. It's better, but we're not just going for mediocrity. You know, we are going for absolute full liberation of these horses. They should not be working in New York City, period. Um, that law also provided some more protections for the horses. Um, they have more protections in terms of the temperatures and the humidity that they can work in. These are all good things and they're a step in the right direction. But as any activist in New York City will tell you, we still have a lot more work to do. Uh, the next piece of legislation on horses that they are looking at is one that would provide mandatory retirement for the carriage horses. There's this myth that when the horses are no longer working in New York City that they go off to some beautiful green pasture uh, and live their lives out. That's just not the case. The carriage drivers have no financial incentive and certainly no concern for where the horses go after their careers are over. And they have never been willing to disclose where they bring their horses at the end of this time. They will sign a piece of paper that says, oh, I sold it to a farmer in Pennsylvania. And that absolves them of any responsibility. Well, when that farmer in Pennsylvania is done with those horses, where do you think they're going? Um, so we are hopeful that that legislation will come up sometime in the next year and it will provide at least a little bit more protection for the horses so that they can be ensured that if they are forced to work in New York City, the end of their life care will be provided for them. Um, I don't know how long you followed the carriage horse issue, but for decades, this has been going on, like I said. And I think the amount, the progress that you have seen, although it may feel minimal, um, I can say, having, ex having lived it, that just getting to the point of moving the horses into the park, of moving their roots into the park, um, even though their stables aren't there, and getting more restrictions on temperature was a huge lift. This is an issue that, like I mentioned earlier, I think served more purposes for the greater animal rights movement in New York City than just the horses themselves, in that it became a big issue in the mayor's race um, in 2013. And that was when politicians really started to look at animal rights activists as a serious voting bloc who were organized and were holding them accountable. And when we started to find that we weren't going to get a ban, we weren't going to get to replace them with cars, I still felt that we had built up enough capital and a big enough of a shift in compassion, in the amount of compassion for animals that exist in the city council, that we could translate that into getting other laws passed for animals. And I think that's why in 2019, we saw about 10 different pieces of legislation that were passed for animals in New York. One of those was the ban on foie gras. And for those that aren't familiar with what foie gras is, uh, you can go to our website, nycfoiegras.com, and you will, you know, fair warning, it's, a it's quite graphic. Um, it's when they take a duck and they shove a pole, foot-long pole down their throat. They force feed them with pounds and pounds of grain and they do that two to three times a day for multiple weeks. They do that to fatten their liver so that it grows to 10 times its normal size. And then they slaughter the duck, harvest the liver and serve that as a delicacy in restaurants. And this is done all over the world. 
um, whether it's in North America or in Europe, um, we're certainly seeing a decline as more and more people learn about why, uh, how foie gras is produced. But we found that the city council in New York, through the horse carriage issue, it sort of forced them to take, I think, another look at thinking of animals as sentient, conscious, loving beings that have feelings, that have families, that have personalities, and expand that compassion to other issues. So it made it a lot easier when we went to the council and said, hey, we want you to do other issues such as banning the use of wild and exotic animals and circuses in New York City. We got that done. Um, we went to them and talked to them about foie gras. We were able to get that done. We were able to convince the council to have a permanent office of animal welfare under the mayor. Um, these are issues that I don't think would have ever gotten off the ground in New York City had we not taken the steps of making them political issues and building a voting block around them. Right, that's incredible. And the, the office, <clears throat> that's also great. You helped, the work you've done, BFAR has done, helped establish that official um, yeah. Office of Animal Welfare. That's really incredible. Yeah. So that's- It a, just opened up this spring. Right, that's oh. very exciting. Uh, with the-, the reason that, um, that I, I just want to point out that the reason that that law was incredibly important is, so when Mayor de Blasio took office, he appointed somebody to serve as a liaison on animal rights. But that, had, that position had never existed in New York City government before. And there was nothing to guarantee that after his term is up in 2021, that we would have somebody in office who would serve as that liaison. So by codifying this into law, it ensures that no matter who is the mayor of New York City, there will always be an office of animal welfare. We found that's been incredibly uh, helpful to us in navigating city government and advocating for uh, our position whenever there's some sort of change at a city agency or a city department that affects animals. And I would certainly encourage advocates all over the globe to work with their city governments to ensure that you do have an advocate for you that's actually within your local city legislature. Right, it's incredibly important. <clears throat> uh, with the, I want to go back to the horse carriage issue briefly um, because I thought what you touched on was also so important in terms of sort of that community awareness, that aspect of it being this sort of romanticized, um, very old tradition of riding through Central Park. But there was the video recently that I first saw, I think, on BFAR Media that, that showed the, um, I don't know if it was injured horse or the, the horse had fallen and the yes, so there was a horse named Asia. Um, it was actually another organization that uh, Nye class that had received video from a good Samaritan um, who was in the park at the time. And the, it's very graphic, um, very disturbing, very upsetting. I cried the first time I saw the video and I haven't been able to watch it since where uh, the horse starts to stumble and fall and collapse to the ground. Um, the owners, you know, begin poking and prodding and kicking and blowing smoke in the horse's face in an attempt to get the horse up. And eventually the horse is loaded into a, a, a truck um, and hauled away. And eventually the horse uh, did pass away. We have suspicions as to why the horse passed, but they're currently performing an autopsy. And, you know, we're very curious to see what happens when those results come back. 
Right, but it's because of the, these sort of Good Samaritan videos, and that's one of the benefits of this digital area, can help really just bring the awareness of this issue. People look at that and they're horrified and thinking this happened, you know, I, yeah. you know it paints for those people who maybe aren't aware of or don't want to be aware of because you want to keep your ideal um, of, blinders. Yeah, keep your blinders on. And I did it um, for, for many years myself. I didn't know until maybe my mid-20s, late-20s or something that there was a problem with, with these rides. Um, yeah these sort of viral Good Samaritan videos because it wasn't somebody you could tell the person who took the video was was doing it out of concern and capturing a moment it wasn't like just gawking um, but, but all across the spectrum this can really help um, explode awareness so that was remarkable about that video is that it existed right because what, what we have found happens is there's no mandatory reporting mechanism when a horse is hurt or injured or, or passes away. Um, the carriage industry certainly isn't going to post video when a horse collapses or when a horse is hurt or when um, right. a horse is in an accident. So we really don't know when these things happen. And it's only when somebody happens to be walking by with a camera and they think to one, take photo and video, and then two, find a local advocacy organization or the media and send it to them that we even find out that these horses are in these accidents or that they've been injured or that they've passed away. Right, right. It was an incredible moment to have just captured that. Yeah, I'm grateful to whoever took that video. I really am. Wow. Um, although it was very hard to watch. Yeah, I, I cried as well. But yeah. so this, uh, you've already shared so much about sort of how New York City has informed the work of VFAR, but for you, is there anything else you want to share about how being in New York City has informed your life and work as an animal rights activist? You've, you have addressed this quite a bit, but if there's, um, if there's more uh, specifically about the community that has sort of informed your, your work in advocacy. Sure. So, I mean, I think in New York City, we're very lucky in that we have an endless number of vegan restaurants and resources at our hands see that grow in every city across the world. And it's amazing that we are starting to see that everywhere. Um, I went to Europe last summer and I never really traveled before. And it was amazing that no matter what small town I went to, when I would Google local vegan restaurants or vegan activist groups, um, there was something, no matter how tiny the town was. Um, but certainly in New York, I think we are a little bit spoiled in that it's so easy to find vegan food. It's, it's very easy to get involved. It's easy to find organizations um, to protest with, to advocate with. Of course, encourage everybody to uh, come and advocate with us at Voters for Animal Rights. Um, but I think one thing I would point out about New York City is I feel that because there is so much... Um, there's always so many eyes on New York City, right? It's the center of the fashion world. It's a huge hub for food. It's a place that people look to as the hub of progressivism that we have to make sure that we're setting an example in the kinds of laws and policies that we're setting here in New York. Um, because that way, I think it gives activists in other parts of the globe an example to point to. Um, if New York City can ban foie gras, everybody else in, you know, the country and in the world should be able to ban foie gras. This is a huge foodie city. Some of the most famous restaurants in the world are in New York. If we are able, you know, if restaurants are able to take foie gras off their menu and still survive and 
still have all other kinds of wonderful fare to offer to their customers, then certainly any restaurant anywhere can remove foie gras from their menu. Exactly. Um, so I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. Another thing that I want to point out about New York is I think that there's a misconception that because um, we are seen as a very progressive liberal uh, city in New York, I don't know what they, I'm not sure what the equivalent to progressive is in other parts of the country, I'm, I'm sorry, in other parts of the world, um, but I guess you could think of it as like very liberal. Yeah, I would say yeah. progressive, yeah, for sure yeah. works, yeah. Okay, so it's assumed that because it's very progressive and liberal in New York City that, oh, you must have all of these laws here. It must be so easy to get animal rights done. No, sir. <laughs> if that was the case, we would have banned horse-drawn carriages 10 years ago. Right. Uh, I point that out because I think there's an assumption that if a city is progressive or liberal and if most of the politicians are progressive and liberal, that they're um, naturally going to be... Uh, passing all kinds of animal rights laws and more sympathetic to you. And we have found that that is not the case. You still need to put the time into educating all of your local elected, local elected officials, no matter what their party affiliation is, whether they're extremely conservative or progressive, the education component just isn't there. Um, a good example uh, would be, you know, sometimes we have found that somebody might be super sympathetic and progressive on issues like immigration or on LGBTQ uh, issues. But then when it comes to animal rights, they're just, they're just not there with us. Mm -hmm. um, I had another example I wanted to give you and I just forgot about, oh, this was another good one. Um, I would say never assume that because a politician is with you on one animal rights issue that they're gonna be with you on another. When we did the foie gras ban, uh, Thanksgiving, that, be, that passed in the city council, and then Thanksgiving came up a few weeks later. And I turned on Twitter, went on Twitter, and I saw several members of the city council who were huge supporters of the ban on foie gras and all of the laws we had just passed over that year, sharing a turkey dinner. And, you know, I had to take a, a deep breath and just remind myself that this is a constant fight you know, education doesn't stop. Um, just because you have one-on-one -on -one issue doesn't mean that every issue is just gonna fall into place after that. You have to always be educating the public, always be educating your elected officials. They may have made the connection on uh, ducks and geese around foie gras, but they haven't yet made that bridge to say turkey and chicken. So that's just something I wanna point out there is very important to keep in mind and you have to have a lot of patience and give a lot of grace to these decision makers if you want to bring about change. Yeah, well, being familiar with vegan advocacy sphere, I mean, I share, I share your um, sentiments uh, that there's a disconnect and, I've, and also now looking at this chapter with COVID, you see people talking about oh, how, disgusting, right. how disgusting what they eat over there and for many of us, how yeah. disgusting, like for me, uh, yeah, I used to eat turkey dinners. Now it's, it's disgusting to me. There's a lot of things that I grew up with and that are part of the culinary fabric of American life, you could say, I'm American, uh, that I find pretty disgusting now, you know? I'm not always pointing it out, but um, there's definitely a disconnect, you know? Um, over there they eat dogs, over here we don't, but we eat, you know, X, Y, Z animals. So there, it is a constant struggle, but I really love how you, how you, 
emphasize that even though New York City is really a pr progressive hub for many, many things, there is work to be done. And the work you do with VFAR encapsulates that. I mean, you've passed um, legislation that's groundbreaking, I mean, worldwide, I think. Yeah, so people can look to you and learn, but I think that's um, so down to earth and valuable to say we have so much more work to be done because that's the truth. Right. And on the, on the foie gras campaign, what I want to mention too is we, because we've done the work, we have a lot of the materials that are ready to go if activists anywhere in the country or around the world want to use them. We have our website, NYC Foie Gras, that has all kinds of materials. We have lobby packets, graphics, um, all kinds of press releases, materials that you can give out to the media or to the public or local elected officials, action alerts. And these are all available for anybody who wants to take these and replicate them for their municipality or their state uh, to run their own campaign. We'd be more than happy to talk to them about how to do that locally. That's fantastic. The resources, yeah, I'll be sharing all the links, um, all your links. Um, so we have to come to a close soon, but I do want to check in with you. I mean, this very crazy, strange, um, unprecedented chapter in our lives about, uh, well, you are in New York City, but how things are there right now. Well, it's, if I can be totally honest, it's, it's not great. Um, I mean, I personally am, I'm fine. My husband and I are healthy. We're working from home. We have five cats running around the apartment <laughs> all day. So, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a to be at home, um, but you know, that's not the case for a lot of many, many people here. I mean, there are ambulances blaring from the second we wake up until the time we go to bed at night and all night long. Um, there's hundreds and hundreds of people dying here in New York City every single day. It's a very, very strange existence to walk outside your door wearing a mask, wearing gloves and, uh, Going into, you know, just seeing empty streets in New York City is something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Um, but, you know, New York City is going to get through this. The rest of the country and the world is going to get through this. And my hope is that everybody comes away from this crisis as a more compassionate human, a more patient human. And I think once the dust settles, I think there needs to be a serious conversation had about our food system and about animal agriculture. Um, I think it's very difficult right now while people are still dying and while we're in crisis to educate the public about animal agriculture and about how that contributed to COVID. Um, but long-term, I think once we flatten the curve and once people are able to sort of look back and take a, you know, take a step back and say, okay, what caused this? What can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? That's when we can start bringing up the conversation of, you know, shutting down factory farms, shutting down live animal slaughter markets, and talking about how really our food production system is what's to blame here in this crisis. Right. Absolutely. I'm. I'm. I've been participating in a lot of webinars, and that's that's definitely trickling up. But I think that's um, that's. Um, sensitive and and important to recognize timing too um but i would love to host you again and get into all of that so um praying for things to calm down and 
um, yeah, for things to normalize, but not, of course, not, it's a new normal we're returning to. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it requires all of us, all of our attention. So I love the work you're doing. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm, I'm so grateful for it and to learn from it and to uh, hopefully meet you again and yeah. talk, about more, talk about more issues. Hello to all your cats. <laughs> They're probably so happy you're home. They're thrilled. I imagine they've got you undivided 24 seven. <laughs> I'm just grateful that they didn't make too much noise during this because right before we started, they were like wrestling and, and playing with their kick toy and it was a mess. Oh, that's fine. I mean, I think that's another kind of interesting, exciting part of this chapter is now everybody is, everything's turning to this remote system and we're getting yeah. into everybody's lives, which is bringing things down to a very human level also. I think it's kind of, it's kind of nice. But thank you very much. I look forward to when we talk again. So until next time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Visit us online at pacificrootsmagazine.com.